Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. He is an NBA analyst for The Athletic, and he is the author of The Midrange Theory, which will be released in November. We welcome Seth Part now onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Seth? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on to the show. And, and Seth, you're very knowledgeable at, about analytics. And the first question I wanted to ask you, it seems like kind of the old heads in the NBA, they're kind of they're haters on new technology. Um, most <laughs> <laughs> the most notable example is Charles Barkley. I'm sure you've seen this on Inside the NBA, how much he just dashes. Analytics. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get your your thoughts on kind of like that generational gap as to, it, it just seems very obvious to use data that is correct, factual, and actually helpful, but yet kind of the older an, analysts seem to be resistant towards it. Do you know why that is? Uh, some of it is a communication issue. Um, at some point, um, statistics were presented as something other than basketball um so it's oh that's this this other thing we're talking about where in actuality especially with the technology we have today for describing the game through statistics it's just looking at the same thing with a different lens and that hasn't really been understood as well because you know to to the standpoint when all we had was the box score um be you know there's a point there it's like oh the box score doesn't pick up on this or that it's like yeah you're right it doesn't doesn't pick up on defense it doesn't pick up on screening it doesn't all these other things but through a number of, of techniques and technologies we have now we can get some visibility into that and seth i watched some previous interviews with yourself and you mentioned that i believe this past season was one of the most efficient scoring seasons in nba history um do you expect that trend to continue in this upcoming season or do you think last season was kind of like an anomaly the short answer is i don't know Okay. Um, there's sort of multiple trends going on at once. Um, I think that the NBA as a whole is trending more efficient. Um, just uh, the understanding of what is and is not a good shot. Uh, the rule set um, is very pro offense right now. Um, and also, I think that between the fanless games, uh, uh, I think we saw sort of a similar thing that we saw during the bubble of a very good uh, shooting environment. I think. My personal theory is that um, because of no fans kind of along the sidelines, everyone kind of felt just a little bit more open um, than than they would have been. Even if there's no defender near them, just not having some dude like munching on his popcorn kind of in your peripheral three feet away from you. It's, it, mm. it, it, it can't hurt to, to not have that around. Um, so I think the, the fans, since the fans will be back this year, um, for the full season. I'm still, we're still not entirely sure how close they'll be. So how much that trend reverses, but the, the, but there will be some presence. Um, The rule changes or the, the new emphasis the NBA has put on kind of the uh, some of the, the griftier foul drawing we've, we've seen kind of come into vogue. Um, That's, that's a pro defense change, whether that sticks and how much of an effect that has, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think those are that that's those are reasons to think it might come back to earth a little bit, but at the same time, um offenses are still ahead of defenses and uh I think some of the big rule changes haven't really been made yet. 
Um, only giving two shots on a, on a foul three-pointer outside of the last two minutes would be one. Um, cleaning up moving screens would be another one. It's very easy to create an advantage situation uh, because, uh, you know, you can kind of reverse pivot into a screen and all of a sudden the defensive player chasing over the screen has to go kind of a turn a three-foot wider arc than the ball handler. Um, it's not that hard to get downhill and draw a second defender if you're if you make that kind of uh, uh, easy for even sort of the, the the mediocre point guards to do. Gotcha, Seth. I was I was wondering. You know, you mentioned offensive efficiency. We've had some guests on our show that have mentioned, um, you know, teams maybe not having the same level of effort on the defensive side of the ball last season, which. Um, you know, I, I guess my question is, do you have anything that you can look at or, or anything that you've seen that indicates whether that trend would be true or whether it just is truly that offense is getting more more efficient? Uh, I'm I'm highly skeptical of any explanation of of defense in the NBA that that kind of reduces to these guys aren't trying. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's you know, you, 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 you get up close to the game and you just, it, it's just obvious how ridiculous a statement that is. Um, I do think that because of the, the sort of the shortened preseason, the less practice time last year, there wasn't as much time to kind of drill scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were probably more kind of defensive errors that were sort of execution rather than effort, you know, wrong rotation, not recognizing the rotation of, uh, two different play like the the ball handler and the screener defender being in two different coverages i think stuff like that probably happened more last year just because of the you know the both the lack of practice time and also especially early in the year which is when the bulk of the quote real practices happen in the nba uh there was all kinds of restrictions about who could be on the floor how long you could go guys were missing in and out because of of protocols i think it was just a a tough year to have any sort of defensive continuity for a lot of teams. Mm, gotcha. Um, on that note, Seth, how do you think this upcoming season is going to look? It seems like we're going down the road of the majority of the NBA players either being forced to be vaccinated or if they're not going to be vaccinated, life's going to be very unpleasant for them. And for those unvaccinated players, how do you think that's going to disrupt the roster if the majority of the team is unvaccinated in terms of that you know, team continuity? Because they'd have to go through all these hoops and loops just to basically live a traditional NBA life, in a matter of speaking. Oh, peer pressure is a hell of a drug. I, like, I, I don't have a good sense of that. I, it's not something that I've spent a lot of time really diving into who is and who isn't, um, I, you know. It's I, I think if the league could mandate it, they would have. It's obviously it's a collective bargaining issue. So I think what, what you're getting at is right in that, you know, you do all these things sort of to make uh, not being vaccinated as as unpleasant, inconvenient, um, potentially costly. I mean, if, if players are missing game checks because if, if uh, um, you know, being in, in, in the protocols, then that that that's a that is a pretty strong coercion. Um so I think that's that's they're doing what they can. Um, so I don't I don't know. I mean I think that especially for teams that have designs on winning titles, 
Um, I think there's going to be some pretty strong pressure to, hey, don't mess this up by, you know, being an unexpected absence. Like, uh, it's a little bit, I don't know, it was two or three months ago when uh, Michael Irvin uh, came out and just blasted all the Cowboys because, you know, are you trying to win or not? And, you know, that's not a, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know how good an argument that is, but it's, it, it certainly is a convincing argument uh, in this context. Um, Seth, I wanted to shift gears to another observation you made just a few months ago about blowouts and how there are a lot more blowouts this past season. What are the kind of consequences from a fan perspective do you see? Um, do you see as blowouts become more a factor in the upcoming season, if you have like a marquee matchup on a Thursday night, uh, let's just say, you know, the Lakers in Brooklyn and, you know, the first game is just a blowout, for instance, let's say Brooklyn blows out the Lakers. And then there's a matchup, let's say two months later, do you see the consequences of less viewership? Do you see that blowout being kind of a factor in less viewers in that second matchup? Or do you think that the two marquee teams playing each other every single night, do you think, it doesn't matter on our previous matchup. I think it's as, as long as it's two good teams. I mean, if it's, you know, if it's Nets and Lakers early in the season and it's a blowout, you know, the Nets just hypothetically, the Nets blow the Lakers out and then they play again later in the season and the Nets are 35 two and the Lakers are, you know, 20 and 19. Um, there might be, you know, less interest because of that. But I think if they're both like, you know, playing to the level of, of sort of expectations or near two, I still think that game is going to carry sort of the weight. Um, you know, so a lot of the, the blowouts is, is sort of inherent in the, the, the style of play, the swinginess of a lot of three-point shots. So, you know, us winning by 12 tonight doesn't make it any – assuming that, that there are two teams of relatively even strength across the whole league, Team A winning by 12 tonight doesn't really say much about what tomorrow's going to look like um, if, if if the two teams played again. Um, it's just, you know, it's a, the expression is it's a make or miss league. And, um, you know, I think there was uh, last year, there may have been just without without fans and with the, the games so compressed, there may have been a little bit more tendency for teams to kind of drop the rope on a game earlier. And so that, that would sort of like let it get out of hand. Like, you know, normally you see there's 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 a fair number of games that are kind of fake close where it's, you know, one team's ahead 14 all through the third and fourth quarter. And then it suddenly gets cut to six with two minutes left. And it never really gets closer than that. But that wasn't a blowout. Whereas this last year, it was it, that game would be 12 point game with six minutes left. And and uh, we we're, we're playing two, two, two games the next three nights. So let's uh, let's just get out of here. Um I think that there there may have been a little more of that last year than there might normally be. Even if that's actually from a probability standpoint, it teams should probably kind of concede earlier than they do in regular season games. Not that uh, we want to do anything to encourage less competitive regular season games, of course. Seth, I'm curious, does um, the research that you do involve looking at the injury rate in the league as well? Have you noticed any trends with that or have any thoughts as as far as last season went? Do you feel like it's kind of along the lines of what you said earlier, maybe an outlier? We did have someone who specializes in this that was telling us actually – you know, it was, it was a shocking time of the year. Uh, it, was, it was when Jamal Murray had just injured his ACL, unfortunately. Um, but 
you know, it's in spite of that emotional response, the fact of the matter was the injury rate was about the same to that point uh, compared with other seasons, you know, in spite of the season being condensed and everything. Have you, do you have a sense of injury rate in the NBA and if things are accelerating, not accelerating about the same? Um, I mean, there's there's a couple different things going on. I mean, I think when we're talking about injury rate, we're not talking about a guy being held out, you know, an extra night with a sprained ankle. I think what we really mean is, like you say, these 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 like season altering injuries where you know a player misses 20 games or the rest of the season or a playoff series or something like that. And I think that some of that, the narrative behind that, is just like frankly some bad luck. You know, there mm-hmm. were some some pretty high profile injuries during the playoffs, but. You know, Trey Young stepping on our ref's foot isn't. Yeah, like, it's not. I don't know if you can blame. Like, I don't. I don't see how you blame that on the on the you know the the season or um, fatigue or yeah, yeah it's kind of yeah. freak accident. Yeah, like it, and like you know the the very scary moment with with like Giannis that was I like I don't know you can there are people who I think convincingly argue that players are are more susceptible to to kind of serious injury in that kind of like land straight legged situation when they're fatigued. But that's, you know, players take bad steps all the time. And it happens in the first minute of games. It happens in the last minute of games. So it's like what the what the causal relationship there is, is who knows. So, um, but at the same time, I mean, because of rest and sort of the general recognition that it's a marathon, not a sprint through a season, I think you're, we're going to continue to see games missed just because like what's the what is the upside of of pushing it to win a game in february um and that's you know that maybe is reflective of a of a problem the league has with the schedule as a whole but that's that's an issue you should take that that has to be taken up with the schedule maker not you can't ask a team to hey do something that reduces your chance of winning the title because we need you to make this game on february 12th competitive right right um Shifting gears a little bit here, I, I was wondering, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, being that uh, you've worked within the league, but can you take us just kind of behind the curtain and give us a sense of how teams are using their um, the analytics teams on in their franchises? Uh, there's no one answer to that. Um, there's sure. 30 teams, 30 different ways. Um, and, and, you know, some some teams actually have sort of multiple groups doing different things in parallel. Um, I can say when when I was with the Bucks, I mean, we had, you know, there was the traditional analytics group where that 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 I led that was, you know, the draft prep, the 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 trade deadline, the 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 strategic analysis and stuff like that. Uh, and then we had we had a, a, a data people working with the sports the sports science team. Um, I I was I, I can't speak super knowledgeably about the the kind of the exercise science and training return to play parts of that because that was you know we had we had someone else who was an expert and who, who was the expert in that working with that kind of data sure um, so I kind of I, I I could converse with them but I didn't that's not an area I worked on um so but uh, I guess within the traditional kind of front office and coaching roles that's that's kind of the you know you're doing um you know player acquisition evaluation whether that's draft prep free agency trades uh you're doing uh pre-scout of opponents uh something that becomes more much more important uh you know heading into the postseason obviously uh and you're doing kind of i guess in 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 the um 
in the football context, it's where it's, I'm, I'm more familiar. Like the terminology is is clear. That's kind of quality control or quality assurance, like self scout almost. So those are kind of the three major ways. There's also some sort of there's also kind of longer range sort of research things to try to pick out the next trend in the league, try to uncover you know some some maybe fundamental advantages that haven't really been discovered yet or fully exploited yet. But during, especially during the season, that that stuff kind of tends to take a backseat to, you know, what happened last night? What are we looking at tomorrow night? Uh, who should we trade for? Um, so so those are the, in broad terms. That's what teams work analytics groups work on. And it's a different mix kind of with with any different team, you know, how much it does. I would say about half the teams in the league now. Um, it's a little it was a little tough with the limitation on traveling parties last year. Probably about half the teams have a whether it's on coaching staff or someone attached to the coaching staff have a kind of an analytics professional that is with the team every game. Um, and I think that's going to continue to trend upward as we kind of get back to if and as we get back to sort of more normal traveling parties. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that that person's role is usually to like work directly with with uh, the coaches, they may even in, in some places, they kind of get on the floor with players. Um, you know, there's a, there's uh, as of uh, right now, I think there's two assistant coaches in the league that are, um, you know, have come from a, not just they worked with numbers, but have come from a, I, you know, I can code, I can, I can set up a model uh, mm. background uh, Dean Oliver in, in Washington and, and, and Sergio Oliva in Utah um, are, you know, but they're also like basketball minds in their own right. And, and, you know, were are have assistant coach titles but there are like i said another dozen or so teams that have someone with with the with the team basically on every road trip and every home game obviously is is analytics something this might be a very novice question here so forgive me but is analytics something that you see as kind of like in this era of the three-point ball kind of starting to reach its ceiling of potential or do you think it's something that's going to just continue to expand and evolve like what what we can understand and uh kind of comprehend about the game sure so that's it that's a great question um in in part because i think that that there is a um a misunderstanding that uh analytics in basketball is just is simply shoot more threes that's not (laughs) a that no but that's not a that's not a a sort of a conclusion that comes from like a theory that's empirical um, if if the the league environment was such that post ups were more efficient, um, and I think there you know prior to two thousand one or so, post ups were a, a better, a, a relatively better offensive look than they are now. Just I mean the change in the illegal defense rules, change in the skill sets of players, change in in you know offensive philosophies have made it have made it a a harder play to do well, a harder kind of scoring attempt to do well. Um, but if if the environment changes, then, you know, the, the empirical study of the game should catch that and indicate, Hey, you know, what's actually better now is, you know, if we can get the, if, if the play, if we can get our center of the ball in these spots, that's better than, you know, kicking out to a three. Um, so that's, so the, the answer to your question is just because we're all, everyone's shooting threes now, are we done? No, it's, it's, you know, it's always, what is the next best way to win? And the, the the broader answer to your question is there's still a ton of room for improvements in the sort of the integration and communication. I think that's 
Um, for most teams, we've got past the, oh, what is this BS? I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> but we haven't, it's, there's sort of a, um, not a full understanding across all 30 teams, or I would say even the majority of teams that mm. uh, it's, you know, it's not an encyclopedia. It's sort of a, a method of thinking. It's, it's sort of, it's as much about the questions as it is about the answers. It's not something I've always tried to do when working with sort of non-statsy people is say, hey, don't ask me a, a, a stats question. Ask me a basketball question. If you want to, if you want to know who the best three-point shooter is, ask me who the best three-point shooter is. Don't ask me who has the highest three-point percentage because those are different questions. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's what do you want to know? And then it's it's the job of the the analysts, of the data scientists, of the you know the engineers to to get into the data and figure out the way to ask and answer that question in basketball terms. So not come back at you well with the probability of blah blah blah. It's it's no. It's we're pretty certain that based on his ability to shoot on the move and contested and all these other things that we can look at now, that this guy that player A is superior to player B as a shooter kind of overall. Um, and that's that's not a there's not a necessarily a right answer to that question. That's a you know you that's a you weigh all the evidence and make a judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the the technology and the technique comes in is kind of figuring out both how to gather that evidence and then how to weigh it. And I think that process, working that process into your normal kind of decision making and analysis of the game, that's still evolving because that's that, that's that's you know people are going to have to become more familiar with it, not just being you know trivia like you know he you know he sh- he shot thirty six percent in second halves on back to backs. It's you know the 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 old the, the baseball joke about you know what a guy hits in the seventh inning on double headers on Tuesday. <laughs> so what? Like um, <laughs> getting past that and getting to the the real questions that are trying to be answered, um, I think is the is is where the continued integration of the of the discipline can really go forward. And then um, you know the the even in terms of what we can figure out, uh, there's been player tracking data in the league for eight years. We're still scratching the surface of of what that data can can tell us. Um, we're still just kind of getting to the point where we're starting to examine um, decision-making. Like that's what playing basketball is. It's not, it's not, you know, run fast, jump high. It's, you know, okay, I see there's a gap there. And I, then the second defender is going to come and I'm going to hit the guy in the corner. Or if he doesn't come, I'm going to go all the way to the hoop and then shield the ball, lay it in and get fouled. Like those kind of getting to like super minute level of evaluating all like this, the, I just described seven decisions in in, in right. five seconds. And you're, you're not going to get to all of those, but getting to the point where you can see, okay, this is the point where a player has to make a decision what to do on a pick and roll. What do most players do here? What does this player do here? Is he making better or worse choices based on the factors? Like that's stuff we're just kind of starting to be able to, to, to dig into. And that gets to some really interesting stuff about, you know, who is good at basketball, not, not just who, puts up good stats. And I think that, you know, the, the stats are, are tend to be a proxy, but they're not a direct measurement of good at basketball, which is, you know, making those decisions, those, you know, 50 tiny decisions, every player makes in every possession. The one who makes 35 of them correct is a better player than the one who makes 30 of them. Correct. Uh, but getting to the point where we can really start to observe that that's where 
there's still some some growth even from you know an understanding of what's going on and i don't like and the way i described that that sounded very technical but at the same time that's like this is basketball right it's it's uh -huh. you know a coach can can watch a play watch a clip and pick all those out a coach can't watch 1230 games and pick out everyone doing all those things in every game so maybe we can't see it at this level and i'm, I'm cribbing from uh uh, uh, Rajiv Maheswaran is the the CEO of Second Spectrum, the the company that that runs uh, the NBA's tracking data. This is I mean, something he his he always says. Um, you know, I can't see a game the way a coach does, but I can see every game. And so maybe it's maybe it's one level of detail above what a coach can see. But if I can see how every player in the league makes that decision at that point at some level, like that's you know, if we want a point guard. What yeah. what kind of decisions does our point guard have to make? Who are the point guards in the league that that you know maybe are unheralded who do that well? Now all of a sudden you found a player who you got on a minimum who plays like a you know plays like a ten million dollar player for your team because he does the things well that your your the way you want to play calls for and that's I think that's extremely powerful. So from an analytics perspective, how do you view the whole Ben Simmons situation? Because there seems to be a two sides of it like in terms of his actual potential of what he could become and there's actually evidence of what he has presented so far so if you're a front office of a team how do you measure that trying to block the noise of you know podcasts like these who are saying Vincent's is super overrated what's the big deal about him compared to what you're seeing from an analytics perspective and what he can do potentially on your team and how he fits in onto your roster how how are i guess the front office measuring what how they fit Ben Simmons into the overall um, chemistry of their team. I mean, Ben Simmons might be the toughest player to talk about in those terms in the league. Like you put him in the right situation. He's an all NBA level player. You put him in the wrong situation. And I don't want to say he's, he's unplayable, but he's, he's far less than that. And, you know, and that's, you know, and even defining like, again, get back to my last answer. Like we're just now starting to be able to, almost for, uh, formally define those situations. But I think the intuition is, you know, okay, you put him on a team where his lack of shooting matters less. What kind of team is that? It's a team with a, with a five who can shoot probably. It's probably a team that plays more like of a read and react offense and then runs a lot of sets because that, that his versatility can come into play and, you know, um, you know, play almost a, a – Maybe even like a Bam out of bio style offense, but even a better passer and and you know creator. Um, so you know, I think you know personally, and it's it's tough to prove this because again, we're just we don't, especially in public, we don't totally have the tools yet. I think he'd be amazing on the Warriors. Like mm -hmm. oh, him and Draymond can't. Yeah, him and Draymond, but they had like the the feel for the game between the two of them and Steph, and you know, depending on how much Clay has left, like. After, like that's you know there's a lot of figure it out there there's a lot of like sort of random motion you can do with players that are smart that can put defenses in a lot of really tough spots that okay fine he can't shoot but that doesn't mean you just let him roll to the hoop and then someone helps and all of a sudden like two passes later it's Steph taking a corner three like that's a problem mm -hmm. so I you know that's that's a situation where I think would be interesting um I think there are there are ways that he that he could have been used better in Philadelphia next to Embiid. I I think that it requires um, more creativity than the offensive schemes that they've used in his whole career basically have have implemented. So I don't like that's not a perfect fit, 
but the talent between the two is enough that it should have it should have worked better. And you know, at times it has worked better. It's it's just in the last year or so, especially, he was almost de-emphasized to the point that just made him look worse. Um, last question for you, Seth, and unless Matt has another question, um, I want to ask you about the kind of the era of scores that we watch on kind of a daily basis when the season's happening. So Seth Curry, Clay Thompson, James Harden, Kevin Durant, their efficiency. How should fans view them on just a daily basis? Cause I know for myself, you know, I get caught, caught up in Steph's amazing play, but it's one of those things. I don't want to be like a, you know, just lost in the moment and just try to consider other eras. How should an NBA fan view what is happening on kind of on the, the games that they're watching, do you think they should take other eras in consideration in terms of hey, you, know, you see, you know, Seth go off for fifty, and you know, declare him, you know, of course he's the greatest shooter ever, or should his, those statements be tempered a little bit just in terms of what era of basketball yeah. we're watching here? No, I, I never want to be the one to tell someone how to watch the game and enjoy it, but but taking your question as if I'm trying to, you know address the question of is he the greatest shooter ever or where does he fit in like historically like taking that as a given like that's something that interests me as a fan rather than just being like oh that was awesome which is perfectly valid and like you know that's that's sort of how all of us started watching basketball so um there's nothing there's not at all anything wrong with that but um there are some tools at our disposal um i think uh basketball reference in the last year two years has has started putting putting something on their player pages called adjusted shooting which is basically huh. if if the league average on threes or twos or uh, effective field goal percentage or true shooting percentage is a 100, where is that where is that player relative? So that that gives you a pretty quick and dirty way of saying, um, okay, this player's this player shot 42 percent from three. Where is that relative to the league? Three point shooting is probably a bad example because that's actually league wide three point shooting has stayed pretty stable basically since the shot was introduced, but you know, overall efficiency. Yeah, we're in a more efficient environment. So a, you know, it used to be like a 60% true shooting was like, oh my God, wow. And now it's good, but it's like 60th percentile. So, and that's, and, and so taking that into a, into effect, oh, Reggie Miller only had so many seasons where he shot just, yeah, but relative to the league, he was way above the league. And whereas a player with a 60% true shooting now was, you know, good, but not like spectacular. So that's that's one way. And then just, you know, Keep in mind that because of the way that the league has developed, both with the the high pace of play, there's about four more possessions a game now than there were even, I want to say, even like five or six years ago. Um, so it's more opportunities for for scores. Um, there, the offenses have have become more kind of concentrated. In you know the top two or three guys are getting a bigger chunk of the shots. Um, just keep in mind, oh, this guy's scoring twenty a game. Yeah, there was forty some players in the league who scored twenty a game last year. Uh, 10 years ago was like 11. Like, oh. you know, that's just so it's not so much that he scored 20 a game. It's he's if he's 40th in the league in scoring, even looking at it on a per game basis, which is, you know, a reasonable way to look at starters to starters. For example, if a guy scores 20 a game, but he's 40th in the league, that doesn't mean much different than than it meant, you know, 15 years ago when he's the, the 40th place, you know, per game score in the league as averaging 17. It's the, it's not any different because it's twenty and seventeen. It's just again the environment means that you know puts him there. But it it 
you know, again, 20 points a game, all-star. Well, now if 50 guys are doing it, let's look at some other stuff. Awesome. Uh, hopefully that answered your, that, that, that question. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Seth, really appreciate your insight. Um, do you have time for one more quick question? Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I have to ask just because it's, it's the first time it's happened in, in 50 years and you're in that area. What was, I know we're well into the off season, but what was it like with the bucks winning the title there? What was that like to see? What was it like in the area? Loud. <laughs> I live, I, I live, you know, I, I live about seven miles from the stadium and I, you know, I sort of feel like I can hear some of the celebrations. Um, I, it may or may, it may just be my imagination. I did not, I, 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 um, for, I mean, you saw that, you know, the 50,000 people, however many people they said were in the deer district during that, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I, I chose to not avail myself of, of that many people in one place at one time. Um, but it, you know, though people were, were extremely excited. I'm not. I'm not from the area originally, but uh, you know, a lot of my friends are, and everyone was extremely excited. And and you know, I, obviously with good reason. Um, so it was. It was. Uh, yeah. On a personal level, it was. It was a little weird. I mean, I. You know, I worked there up until two years ago, um, but there's. A, I was. You know, there's enough people there that I worked with that I, that I was extremely happy for them. Like certainly. You know the players that were there when I when I was there, they were you know couldn't be happier for you know Giannis and Chris Middleton and and Brooke Lopez and Pat Connaughton. Um, the, like just, they were, I feel like I was very lucky in my time working with the Bucks. In and this isn't always the case. Didn't really feel like there were any any uh, I don't know if it's profanity allowed on this show. <laughs> there, there, there were no, there were, there, curse away. Yeah, yeah, there, 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 there were no assholes like in, 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 in you know, three plus years in the team. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. No worries. No worries, Seth. Um, we'll let you go real quickly. Just let our listeners yeah. and viewers know where we, um, they can find you on social media and also your book as well coming out in November and anything else you're working on as well. So uh, the, the book comes out uh, early November. It's called uh, The Mid Range Theory. Uh, it covers a lot of the topics I think that we've, we've talked about on on the, the show today. Um, a lot of it is trying to really translate what has been sort of a misunderstood or, or just not understood um, field, uh, translate it into language that the that the basketball fan can understand. And oh, I know what that is. Um, so it's not some it's not some mysterious like computer spitting out equations. It's it's just basketball looked at a different way. And so, you know, looking at a bunch of different things from, uh, you know, the draft to playoff prep to shot locations to all these things that you know so much of what makes up the modern nba and how the modern nba is, is played like just explaining some of of why it is developed that way and what's actually happening now um in in a way that can can uh hopefully make the game just more enjoyable for for fans to to take in so so please uh, it's uh, available for pre-order anywhere that uh, that books are sold <laughs> Awesome. Uh, we'll be sure to check that out. Uh, and again, Seth, this was an awesome conversation. Uh, thanks for uh, taking some time off your day to uh, enlighten us with your knowledge. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me.